The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. I want to extend my own welcome to all of you who are gathered here in the name of Jesus. May the peace of Christ be upon you. It's good to be back. I mean, I haven't really gone anywhere, but the month of February was Missions Month, and so Brett and I, we didn't preach at all. I want to thank uh, Kelsey and Mitt and Larry and Milton uh, for preaching and bringing the Word of God to us and encouraging us, inspiring us to be generous and to think about God's mission. As was said earlier by Celeste, about $83,000 that this congregation has either given or pledged. And so I want to say thanks be to God for the work of His Spirit that is working in your lives and softening your hearts to be generous and to be God's people who participate more fully in his mission each and every day. There's lots of other good things going on. Uh, In my time in February, not preaching, get to think about a few other things and just reflect on how blessed, I can speak for myself and I can speak for Kim and our family, how blessed we are to be a part of this congregation. A few things that are going on that you need to know about that you don't already know if you don't know is re-engage is going on. Kim and I have been a part of this marriage seminar that's been going on uh, since the beginning of January. There's 21 couples, including those who are facilitating and leading. It's been fantastic for Kim and I. We've got to have conversations that we should have been having. You know, all the conversations you should have that are both tough and really good. And it's been a blessing to our lives. And so, uh, look for announcement about the next time re-engage comes up. Uh, the if gathering, Kelly uh, led us, led some of the women, not only from this congregation, but from all through the area. There were 60 women at the if gathering. In the month of February, we had two baptisms. And that God has slowly and continually worked to bring about his good news, and birth it in people's lives in the water of baptism. And visitors, feels like every week I meet someone new. And I want to tell you, uh, in, in our time living in Uganda, there's a proverb that visitors are blessings. Amen. So if you're visiting today, thank you for blessing us. Amen. No, Seriously. Thank you for bringing Christ, who often shows up as a stranger, into our midst. We experience Christ in you this day. And I have to say this again. I've talked about this. One of the ways that we're blessed in this time of transition as we uh, look this summer or this late spring to moving to our new location, I can't tell you how much of a blessing it is. To be a part of a church that's going through a transition, that has lots of money in the bank, there's lots of decisions to be made and lots of voices to be heard, and the amount of peace. For those of you that are older, that have lived long enough in church, you know this, 
You've been through churches and been to churches that as soon as you hear about money and all these big decisions, this is a, a place to fight and disagree. And God's Spirit has been working among us to bring peace. Praise be to God. And last but not least, um, Turk and Susan Wilder. They are leaving for a short-term mission project. They're leaving March 8th. They're going to go to Guatemala. And so I want to take this moment. This is kind of an audible we're calling. I want to invite them up, and I want to pray over you guys. And I want to invite whoever wants to come over to to lay hands on them and to bless them because this I said the last time I preached here, I know you don't remember, maybe the last time I preached or what I said, but this is, this is what the Gospel of Matthew says, that if you are called by Christ, you are sent. And so God has called you and God has called us and we want to be a part of sending you so that we ourselves may be sent. So if you come on up and we'll pray, anybody wants to come and gather around them? Father, we give you thanks, for you have called us into your purposes in the world, into your mission, and because you called us, you have sent us, and you've called Kurt, Turk, and Susan, and you've called them to go to Guatemala to be your hands and to proclaim your word. And so, God, we pray your spirit goes before them and is in them and goes behind them. That it provides, that it empowers, that it leads them. And we also thank you. Because in their going, the springs is going as well. And God, we ask you to bless us as we try to be your hands and feet in the world. Empower us with your spirit. Be with Turk and Susan as they go later this week. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Love you guys. Well, I'm going to begin with something very personal to me. Uh, and I, I say that because um, I do really try not to use too many sports analogies in my preaching. I do occasionally. But I also realize that not everybody in the room connects with a sports analogy. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> She's like, this is the best sermon he's ever preached. Until he does the sports analogy, right? But because it's personal, I'm going to, you're going to get a little bit of uh, sports in this. I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. Amen. I, I, <laughs> this is going really well. <laughs> I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. I was a teenager in the 90s when Michael Jordan was a superstar and in his prime. And I'm deeply shaped by the phenomenon 
of Michael Jordan. In fact, when I see this commercial, and I use this with students every semester, I almost get teary-eyed. It's, it may not mean anything to you, but this commercial is inspiring to me. It's a Gatorade commercial, and so you guys watch this. He is suffering from flu-like symptoms. We had to help him into the locker room. It may be a believer. Not luck or fate. You can see how exhausted Michael Jordan but is. But he will to win. Yes, Michael Jordan! You win from the game. Classic performance by Michael Jordan. I know it's a commercial. I know it's stupid, but I get chills every time I watch it. I know it's weird. But it's based off one of the NBA final games. And he walks into the arena that night with flu-like symptoms. Some people talked about he had a fever over 100 degrees. And not only was he sick and played in the game, he dominated that game. He crushed it. And it is the epitome for me of Michael Jordan's greatness. And yes, he is the greatest basketball player that ever lived. I don't want to hear anything about LeBron James. Exactly, LeBron who? He is the greatest basketball player to ever live and play the game. And that commercial and that game epitomizes for me his greatness. He overcame the flu, an enormous amount of suffering. So after he dunks or makes a three-pointer, he's on the bench with the towel over his head. He's literally almost collapsing. They had to help him into the locker room, his coach said. And Phil Jackson, who was narrating at the coach, he says, made me a believer. Not fate, not luck, but in the will to win. I get chills. That's inspiring to me. There was another commercial, Gatorade commercial, where they sang, I want to be like Mike. And I remember watching Michael Jordan and thinking, I want to be like Mike. To overcome that kind of adversity. To be that determined. To achieve that much. It's inspiring. So I worked hard in sports. You'd find me outside after school, as soon as I got home from school, shooting hoops. Practicing my dunking. I was amazing on an eight-foot goal. <laughs> You'd find me kicking a soccer ball. I'd go up by myself. I'd drag my dad out after work. I don't know how many days after work my dad would come out and play catch with me or work on our hitting or hit me pop flies. And I worked hard. 
And by the time I reached late middle school, I ditched uh, most of the sports that I played, and I decided, you know what, I need to choose one. And it was my first love, the one I started playing when I was about four years old. I played soccer. Gave up basketball, gave up baseball, and just went for soccer. And I worked. Michael Jordan had inspired me, and I wanted to overcome the obstacles that I had. I wanted to achieve. And so to give you an idea, no, it sounds like I'm bragging, but to give you an idea how hard I worked, right? One of the things that you work on in soccer is your touch. How can you touch the ball? Can, it, can you control it when it comes to you? And so one of the things we do when we, play, when we train for soccer is it's called juggling. It's not this juggling with your hands. All that takes a lot of practice and talent. It's juggling with your feet, with your knees, and with your chest and your head. You can't use your hands. You've got to keep the ball in the air. It can't touch the ground. And to let you know how hard I worked, my record for juggling is 5,000 touches before it touches the ground. 5,000. And on 5,000, I kicked it up and I caught it. The ball still never touched the ground. <laughs> and you may ask, why 5,000? It's because if you can do 5,000, you could do 10,000. If you could do 10,000, it's just a matter of time. It took me an hour. I worked hard. So hard that I ended up getting a scholarship to play soccer at Oklahoma Christian University, and I was a collegiate athlete. And my dream, my dream growing up was to play professional soccer, even in high school. So I got the dream of playing in college, and I actually achieved the little part of my dream, and I played some semi-professionally. Then I went on to coach at the collegiate level. It was my profession to coach soccer. I achieved a lot. I'm very proud of it. But it was not only in sports. I thought this kind of, this kind of inspiration, this kind of wisdom, this kind of life that Michael Jordan inspired me to, I, it carried over into all parts of my life. So in academia, it carried over. I mean, I couldn't stand not to get an A. Whenever I could, if it was possible, I got an A. It carried over into my job. I want to be successful at what I do. I want to be good at it. Even my preaching, I want to be good at it. So I work on it. I want to achieve certain things. And it's carried over into my finances in my life that I worked hard to get where I am. And my life has been a steadily, upwardly mobile, as it should be, as it's supposed to be for most of us. And I'm like many of you in this room, is that I've been blessed enough to be recognized at times here and there. Recognize for the achievements, recognize for the abilities that I have, and it's nice to be recognized. In fact, it's good. We want to recognize people who are in here when they have achieved things. 
I've overcome a lot of obstacles, lots of suffering. The kind of suffering, right, that, that gets you over the flu in order to succeed. I've overcome lots of obstacles and suffering in order to be successful, to make a living and have security, and to receive a little recognition along the way. I may not be like Michael Jordan, but I have been inspired and empowered to follow those dreams and to accomplish many of them. It's been a good life. I've been very blessed. But as I've encountered our text this morning, 1 Corinthians, as I've encountered it through my life over and over and over again, I'm convicted by its challenge. I'm convicted by its critique. I'm convicted about the kinds of wisdom and power that I've just described to you. I'm convicted about how I think about my life and how I measure it. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It might be up on the screen for us. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, if you want to understand what this text, what Paul means in this text, there are, there are two things you've got to understand. Is that first, Jews are very interested in power. And not just for themselves, this is how they understand who God is. They look for signs of power. I mean, how could you not? Think about the most significant event in Israel's life, the Exodus. If you want to talk about power, Moses shows up as God's representative. And they do this tit for tat back and forth for a while. And it seems pretty even about who has power. But make no mistake, by the very end, God and his power has brought Pharaoh to his knees. And God has shown both Pharaoh and Israel what power looks like. 
And then you can imagine them walking into the Red Sea and them looking up and God separating the waters. That is a sign of power. Or you look at Elijah when he goes against the prophets of Baal and they can't hear a voice from their God, but Elijah puts the, the, the meat on the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, and this fire comes down from heaven and not only consumes the sacrifice, but all the wood and all the stones and all the water and everybody, their eyes open up and they become aware. God has shown up. No one would conceive, no Jew would conceive of God's Messiah in the way Paul's talking about him. Suffering Messiah, those two words together are a contradiction in terms. Remember Peter's rebuke when Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and die? And Peter pulls him aside and he says, what are you saying? Messiahs don't do this. This is like antithetical to what it means to be king. Kings don't suffer and die. They're no longer king if they do. And second, for Jews, to be hung on a tree was to be considered a curse. So Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. And his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. And you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given to you as an inheritance. I mean, Jesus, very existence in his suffering and his death, it actually contradicts what Deuteronomy talks about. They look at that and they go, that guy's cursed. So to proclaim the message of the cross, to get a sense of what this might mean for Jews, It'd be like you walking in this morning, and up front we've clearly displayed swastikas hanging on the wall. I know, part of you thinks, how could you say that? You'd be purely disgusted if we actually did that. You'd wonder, what are they doing here? What are these people about? That's so offensive. I can't stomach it. The other thing you've got to know is that Greeks, Greeks loved wisdom. They love wisdom. They like their heroes that overcome suffering and are tragic sometimes, but you give a Greek a philosopher any day. Because they want to know how to live well. How to live a fruitful, prosperous life. I mean, make no mistake about this. You, you may not realize this, but Greek philosophers have deeply, deeply influenced all of us. There's two in particular, Plato and Aristotle. 
I mean, they came before long before Jesus, and they have influenced, in many ways for good, Western culture. In many ways, Plato, the idea of democracy. Many in this room we cherish. Those ideas for us are cultivated in many ways by Plato. And for Aristotle, there might not be the kind of scientific revolution and discoveries that we've been able to make without Aristotle and the way he thought. He laid all the groundwork for that. These guys, their wisdom brought so many good things that you and I are still benefiting from today. The Greeks loved wisdom. And so for a Greek person to hear about the cross of Jesus Christ as wisdom, it sounds like foolishness to them. So much so that it would be like Brett and I preaching a sermon series called Your Best Life Now. And you're thinking, awesome, I'm about to hear about the best life now. And as we preach this sermon, we call everybody up to your best life now. We call each and every one of you to sit up, to come up front, and we have an electric chair up here. And it's not just an electric chair. It is plugged in and ready to go. And we say, come and sit. And as crazy as that sounds, that's what the cross sounds like to to, to Gentiles. You mean you find wisdom in the electric chair and sitting in the electric chair? You find life and well-being here? That's foolishness. So the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews. That is not what power looks like. And it's foolishness to Greeks. That's not what wisdom looks like. But to those who are being saved, Hear this. In some odd, strange way, to those who are being saved, the cross is the wisdom and power of God. Many of us think about the cross in this way, and we should, that the cross is salvific, that the cross saves us from our sins. This is primarily what the cross does for us. It's the saving event. That is true. Amen. Praise the Lord. But there's also this sense in Scripture, particularly for Paul and also in some of the Gospels as well, that it's not just primarily or only. It's not just only or maybe not even primarily about your forgiveness of sins, but the cross, as much as anything else, is revelatory. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is revelation. Because we, always, we usually want to say this, is that Jesus looks like God. Well, on the cross of Jesus Christ, when he suffers and dies, it flips. It's not that Jesus looks like God. So if you want to see what God looks like, look at, right? If this is God looks like, Jesus looks like God. You flip it. Here's how it is when the cross, when Jesus suffers and dies, it's not that Jesus looks like God, it's that God looks like Jesus. Do you see the difference? 
In other words, God is the crucified God. He is the one who suffers and dies. If you want to see the clearest picture of what God looks like, don't think power of the Exodus. Think suffering and death of the Christ. Because for Paul, that's what power looks like. That's what wisdom looks like. And so for us, the cross is not just something that saves us. It's something that reveals something to God, about God to us. In other words, here's what we, one of, at least one of the things we glean from this, is that the cross of Christ is an ethic for us. You can't encounter the cross without it critiquing the way you think, particularly about power and wisdom and what those things are. And you cannot encounter the cross of Christ without it critiquing the way you behave. It is a critique. Because it looks at ideas of power and wisdom and all the ways we think about our life, and it critiques it. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scribe? Where are the wise people of this age? Has God not made them foolish? It both critiques our thinking and it critiques the way we behave. Brett and I are starting this sermon series on Lent, the cruciform life. And I feel like you should know something about the season of Lent. Lent, it's actually not much of a religious word at all. It's actually an old English word, and it means lengthening. Because in Europe, right, in an agricultural setting, in medieval times, Lent became this time in the spring, beginning in March, where it's this, this lengthening of days until we get to the summer solstice. And so, it just so happens that in the Christian tradition, and for many Christians that practice Lent, this is a time, they practice it during this time, and it became known as Lent. Right? It's interesting where it came from. But it also kind of, cons- kind of corresponded to this idea that the light is getting brighter as you move towards Easter. Even though we darken things by extinguishing candles, which is an appropriate practice too, because it gets a lot darker before it gets a lot lighter. In fact, for those who practice Lent, for those that practice Advent, which we do, in this congregation, often during right before Christmas. Advent is expecting. It's this preparation before Christ's coming. It's this intense time that we prepare our hearts to receive God into the world. Lent is also a time of preparation, but it's not a time to prepare to receive Christ. It is a time to prepare for death. That's what Lent is. Good Friday is coming, and there's always Good Friday before there's Easter Sunday. 
There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And Lent is modeled about two weeks ago. It's Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent. And Lent is 40 days, not counting Sundays. It's 40 days. And it's this to model Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting. Preparing for ministry and preparing himself for death. Lent is a season where we journey with Jesus into his suffering and into his death. It's a time of repentance from sin. It's a time of self-denial. It's a time of self-discipline. Not in order to achieve some great goal or recognition or personal growth, but to participate in Christ's suffering and death. That's why we participate. That's why it's foolish. Because people would look at it and go, this makes no sense for you to do this. We fast often for reasons that are related to our health. This has nothing to do with your health. This is everything to, you, to do with you suffering and dying with Jesus. You see how it's an ethic? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved is the power and wisdom of God. And this wisdom and power is found in my own story that you heard. And even if you can't identify with the sports in it, I think you can identify with many themes. Themes of wisdom in our culture about achievement, about upward mobility. I mean, even that I say that out loud, can you imagine anyone, why it would be good to be downwardly mobile? That's not even a real option, even though it happens to us, not of our own choosing. It's a story and wisdom about recognition. The wisdom of our day is happiness and well-being. The wisdom of our day is freedom. Power of our day is freedom. The power and wisdom of our day, dare I say it, is your individual rights. We are obsessed with self-maximizing and reaching our potential. And the highest good, I think the highest good in all of our culture is the removal of, of suffering. It's the removal of suffering out of our lives. And I know you're thinking this because as I'm saying it, you're thinking, This makes me uncomfortable because this is good. It is wisdom. It's what we think is wisdom. How can the cross of Christ, how can suffering and death be wisdom and power? Another thing many Christians have noted about the cross of Christ is this. While it reveals something to us, it reveals actually who God is. When God really, his most decisive moment in the world, he decides to show up, it says this is the defining moment of who God is and his suffering and death. 
What Christians have known, noted is that the cross conceals as much as it, heal, as it reveals. I mean, as I talk about it this way and ask that question, how could this kind of suffering and death be wise and powerful? In fact, Paul goes on a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He says, we do not, however, speak a message of wisdom. We speak a message. We do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. And hear this, a mystery that has been hidden and destined by God for our glory before time began. Even Paul recognizes this is crazy talk. It's a mystery. Thanks be to God. And I think one of the ways that we become to understand this kind of wisdom is not by standing, not by listening to a sermon, although we're going to preach sermons to you about this. It's what Brett and I do. It's what we're being called to do. Because in some ways, it sounds like crazy talk, and it is. Even as I say it, I cringe because I love me some Michael Jordan. And I really liked how my life has been arranged. I think it's wise and powerful. But I think we learn it not just by hearing this word, but by actually participating in small little ways in Christ's suffering and death. This is what Lent is. Lent is a call for us as a community in small, small ways to begin just practicing Self-denial, pleasure, all the things that we want. Not because it's good for our health, but because we become to understand more and more the wisdom and power of God and His suffering and death. And so here's how Christians have practiced Lent. They fasted. It doesn't have to be a full fast from food, but many fast from meat. Maybe some of you fast from coffee. I didn't ask Greg if I could do this, but he mentioned to me he was going to fast from Facebook. It's self-denial, giving up pleasure. Maybe it's something that is maybe not wrong necessarily to have, but something you give up. Maybe it's actually sin in your life. And this is a chance to practice Lent and deny yourself and give it up. It's a time of repentance to change. It's a time of self-discipline. Maybe it is that you commit to the, the discipline of prayer and Bible reading. I know we're supposed to do that, but be honest with yourself sometimes. Some of us are like Gene. You'll wake up and I'm picking on you a little bit. I find prayer to be hard. I'm just telling you. You're not alone. If you find prayer, your prayer life to be hard, come talk to me. I find it hard too. I'm not praising that. I'm just saying I do. Maybe it's practicing more humility. Maybe it's silence and solitude. 
Maybe it's suffering with others. Maybe it's about giving up during Lent a freedom you have. Maybe it's about giving up a right that you might have. Maybe it's practicing weakness. Maybe it's just practicing vulnerability. So I said at the beginning that my goal is to become a professional soccer player. And I remember being in college or just shortly after college and I went to Nairobi, Kenya and I was visiting with, uh, staying with Darlene Charles and Darlene Colston who are the founding members of Made in the Streets which is a, a ministry that serves the most impoverished people. Some of the most impoverished people in the world of the slums in Nairobi, Kenya. I remember spending a week working with them, and I remember late one night, Darlene, she's fantastic if you know her, and she was asking about my life and what my dreams were and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be, and I just, I mean, it wasn't wishful thinking. I really wanted this. I said, I said, Darlene, I, my goal is to be a professional soccer player, and I'd grown up in church all my life, and so I knew I had faith with me, and I knew I wanted to share my faith as well. And so I said, I mean, Darlene, can you imagine? This is how I want to use this gift. This is how I want to use the wall that I've worked for and achieved is that I want to become a professional soccer player in Europe because if you can imagine, if you're a professional soccer player, if I'm a professional soccer player, imagine the kind of platform that will give me to talk about Jesus. Imagine the, the people that will listen to me because they know me, and I'm famous, I'm a soccer player. And Darlene smiled, and she said, Ben, you don't have to become a professional soccer player for people to listen to you. I said, what do you mean? She says, Ben, all you got to do is love people, and they'll listen to you. And the message of the cross was preached to me that day. For at that moment, I knew my dream. Was crucified. All my achievements, all my pride, all that I have done, all the children running in front of me right now, <laughs> look at what I can do. I could just keep going and they run right in front of me. Come on up, kids. Just come on up anytime, seriously. I knew. I knew my dream was done. I knew I was on the long, beginning a long journey of crucifixion. And slowly by slowly, day after day, I've begun through my own experiences, denying all the wisdom I know and all the power that I have to experience this wisdom that really is just foolishness. And this power that just seems like weakness. Brett and I, we want to invite you this month, leading up to Easter, leading up to Good Friday, fast from something, deny yourself something, not because it's good for you. That's not why we do it. It's because you are called to participate, to share in his suffering and become like him in his death. This is the cruciform life It's going to feel weird. It's going to seem foolish. 
it's only foolish to those who are perishing. But if we participate in this, maybe, just maybe, we might discover that the cross that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the power and wisdom of God for those of us who are being saved. Let's stand and sing.